Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you as well to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams working in some of the nation's largest hospitals and healthcare systems. As a leading provider of clinician-designed content, the Clinician Experience Project team partners with clients to deploy skill-building programs that map directly to organizational goals, delivering measurable enterprise-wide results. To learn more about how your organization can improve patient and organizational outcomes, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Lauren Feld. Dr. Feld is a transplant hepatology fellow who has finished the GI component of her fellowship, and she has written about workforce gender equity and parental leave policies for medical trainees. She joins us during Women in Medicine Month to discuss interviewing for both fellowship and attending physicians while pregnant, the articles that she's written on the subject as well, and the experience of navigating pregnancy during medical training and being a mentor to others walking that same path. This is a wonderful conversation. And a brave one on Dr. Feld's part as well. So it was a real privilege to get to speak with her. Would like to just remind everyone, please do subscribe to and rate Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. A five-star rating and a review really helps us out. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can find the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com as well. If you are enjoying the wonderful TV show, Ted Lasso, definitely check out the Med Lasso episodes that we're doing on Explore the Space and check out the hashtag Med Lasso content on Twitter. It's a great time and a lot of fun as well. We are in the midst of Women in Medicine Month, so it's wonderful to have Dr. Feld here. So without further ado, Dr. Lauren Feld. Lauren, welcome to Explore the Space. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's important to acknowledge that we were connected by someone who I think we both have great mutual respect for. When when Julie Silver sends me a text message or an email that says, Mark, this person needs to be on your show, it's just how fast can we get scheduled? Thank you for being so fast. This did not take us very long. And I know you're a very, very busy person. I appreciate you being so receptive. Julie Silver is an incredible mentor. And, and anytime, you know, she recommends an opportunity, I I um, it's wise to jump on it. It's just a good rule. It's just if Julie says this is a good idea, it's a good idea, most likely, and it's worth pursuing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's a good mindset to have too. I think when you're, you know, medical school residency fellowship, and then beyond, it's that idea of identifying who are mentors, who are 
leaders that sort of represent you and you feel like understand what your vision is. And so it fits the puzzle together nicely so that when they say something, you don't have that like cognitive dissonance that uh, they don't really, they don't, I'm not sure that they get me and I don't know if this sounds right versus I'm in lockstep with them. So if they say this is cool, it's cool. Exactly. She understands, you know, that's, and I think that's one of the things that I identify sort of a very good mentor is someone who understands you as a person and your values and your goals and, um, and sort of looks for opportunities for you. And so I think that's, that's super important for everyone in medicine. So we get to record this during Women in Medicine Month. It's September of 2021. And obviously these episodes are evergreen, but just to give people that kind of that timestamp, that reference point, if we think about mentorship, if we think about the the Julie Silvers in the world of medicine, you've been in the profession for a while and you're going to have a nice long career after, hopefully. Do you feel like the availability of mentors for women in medicine is increasing as you see it? Is it where it needs to be? Or is it, boy, this is a really shallow pool and the Julie Silvers are just getting overtapped? Hmm. Um, that is a good question. Um, I think I've been fortunate in my career to have truly incredible mentors, both women and men who, you know, both mentors and sponsors, people who sort of identify you, you know, like, like Julie Silver did for this opportunity. And, and, um, and so I, I have felt very fortunate so far that I've always had a good pool of people to, to help support, you know, my interests and my values and goals. Um, I think that I do worry with um, Julie's, you know, part of her give her a reason to stay campaign for women in medicine uh, month, that, that there is this, there is data that there's a lot of of women leaving academic medicine or leaving medicine at all. And so I, I am, I want to make sure that we maintain our pool for women in the future so that people can have sort of the same experience that I did. There's a theme that comes up at least from my kind of place of observation and engagement of the work being done during women in medicine month and done across the calendar. And it's, I think, as we've acknowledged, COVID makes everything a lot worse, that it's a, a real threat amplifier, is this idea of loneliness, that medicine can feel mm. lonely right now, whether we're at work and we're isolated from our families, whether we're in our PPE and we can't hear things, whether we have colleagues who are leaving. It's interesting because I reflect on that a lot. And you forwarded me a couple of articles that you wrote, and they'll be in the show notes. They're very, very good. I was struck by something. You're the sole author on both. <laughs> That's a rare thing in our profession. Usually there's a long list of co-authors. And the first thing that came to my mind when I read them was this, because I was already in that place of, this is lonely right now. Yeah, It made me sad. I, I, yeah. I, I was like, gosh, w what is happening that people are writing articles about these critical topics, pregnancy and fellowship, being a mom in residency, and what does it look like applying for jobs and as an attending? and for me, at least, and this is probably a lot of countertransference, you were doing it by yourself. And it just, it made me feel really sad. Yeah. Well, I will say so, because most of my, most of my articles have sort of exactly multiple co-authors and, yes. um, and, uh, you know, I'm used to more collaboration as I was sort of going through that interview trail. So one of the articles is about um, interviewing for gastroenterology fellowship while very pregnant. Um, I was in my second or third trimester for, for all of my interviews. 
And I was sort of going through the trail and I had, you know, like, you know, many organized or, you know, type A applicants. I had sort of my Excel spreadsheet of, you know, various characteristics of the programs and and would fill it out as I went on the interviews. And then I sort of started this other nebulous column that was like things around pregnancy or like, you know, X person (laughs) said this to me um, or, you know, this group seems really supportive. And this, you know, interviewer started talking to me about childcare. And and so it, it sort of I was using it almost to sort of like remember when I had to go back and make my rank list about programs. But then I, um, you know, when I was sort of reviewing it afterwards, I kind of thought like this should be an article. But I didn't know a lot of people (laughs) who were um, who uh, had had done work in that feel a space. And so I started to do a little bit of research and did a lit review on sort of things about women in GI or pregnancy and training. And then I sort of decided to separate it into two articles. So I made one about just sort of my personal experience and saying, you know, this is what it was like to sort of interview as a fellow or interview for fellowship as a pregnant woman. Um, and this is some, you know, some of the data behind biases. And then I was sort of thinking, you know, why, why don't we have more of this in GI and, and medicine? And why don't we have parental leave? And so then I sort of created the second article that was more about sort of the data behind and the arguments behind parental leave. Um, since that, I've sort of been invited into this group run by Julie Silver that's full of women sort of in academia, in healthcare fields who are sort of um, trying to, you know, advance workforce gender equity. And it's been such an incredible support network and nice to meet other people. There's a few, I've connected with a few other GI fellows. Well, now, now one of them is a former fellow um, in the group. Um, who've done other, um, if you want other great work in this field, Lauren Rabinowitz, um, who is now new faculty at Beth Israel. And I, she and I started collaborating on some projects. And so it was really nice to sort of, I think, putting myself out there. But I, I was surprised that they were, that the articles were accepted. I sort of, I wrote them on like one of my, you know, like after hours and weekends and just sort of felt like it needed to be out there. And then once I sort of put this out there, sort of started connecting with all these people who were saying, who were interested and, and started building it forward. It's, it's a good representation of the importance of, as you say, putting yourself out there, but it's also, I guess, affirming in some way to know that you can put yourself out there and it'll be acknowledged because we, we know that there are too many times where that's not the case. And Absolutely. I think seeing some, some of that momentum is super positive. I didn't do a fellowship, but I worked with lots of fellows in residency. And and I, I remember what it looked and felt like that fellowship is that sort of time of limbo. You're ready to be an attending, but you're not. Um, <laughs> you're, you're still a trainee, but you're not. And there aren't that many of you in your own specialty. So again, that feeling of kind of loneliness, isolation, whatever, you may have moved to a new city to do your fellowship and in and, and these sorts of things. Does that inform the work that you do to make it feel like for others to not to feel more included, to know that there's a network, to know that they can access these things wherever they are in their training? That's a, a, absolutely. Um, and I, I just before I paint too rosy of a picture of, you know, I wrote these articles and they were accepted and then I formed this big network. I will say my my perspective piece um, on interviewing well. For fellowship, it was rejected twice without review to two other journals. So it wasn't even. It was you got that quick email back that this has been reviewed by the editorial board, and and the first rejection said that it was not suitable for like a general audience. Like it was basically said, like this doesn't apply to 
enough of the audience that it would be relevant for our readership. Um, just, that is I'm absurd. Thinking, well, that, so that, I'm, I'm glad you called that out. A lot I, of people. Yeah. I, I won't ask you to name the journal, although I would love it if you did, but you certainly don't have to. That's absurd. A generalized. That's yeah. half your audience. Kind of edit, what, is, what is this thing? How they should all be? They should do, do something else. Anyway, that's was, that's insane. Anyways, that is uh, crazy. But I do think that audience. it's it's certainly a I know exactly they said it's not it's not relevant to a high enough portion and I was like it's not really that niche of a topic um, that can, that can but, be the title uh, of your book and they'll be like oh god we really should have published that I know exactly exactly but um, I do think yeah certainly I mean before the pandemic my fellowship class is only three fellows it was just sort of a small fellowship class in in my general GI fellowship and you know we used to spend time together and go out, you know, to restaurants and eat together and all these things. And and with COVID, you know, that really decreased a lot. Um, I, I like them a lot. I, we still try to see each other. Um, but it's just, it's, it's hard with the pandemic and all the constraints. And so I think that that makes it particularly difficult. And, and I feel much worse for the people who started, who this has been like a huge proportion of their training. I can't imagine you know, I mean, that, that got me through residency was I had this just incredible group of friends who I still, I'm, I'm so grateful to still be in contact with them because I send them text, you know, I have a hematology question. I'm going to text my friend who did a hemog fellowship and, oh no, this patient of mine is having this cardiac issue and I'm just going to sort of, and so it's, and also getting sort of like general support and, um, from them. And, you know, we still have a residency text thread going. And so I think it's, uh, I, I can't, but part of forming that those friendships was all the time we spent together sort of in and out of the hospital. And um, it must be incredibly difficult for people who started training earlier, uh, or this is more of their, more of their training. You're at an interesting crossroads to give what I love, which are these sort of strategic views of just where we are with things. And so there's a couple I'm curious about, but the first one is acknowledging that you're almost done with a long course of training enter you're going to enter the workplace and you're you know sending cvs and interviews and this sort of thing what is your assessment acknowledging that as a as an advanced fellow who's almost done but not yet started the attending road what does the equity the gender equity sort of level of understanding and engagement playing field look like because People who are 25 years into their career will have a different view as a a medical student on day one will have a different career. It's rare to have someone who's an advanced fellow applying into the job market. What does that sense look like for you? Um, I'm In terms of like work and gender equity and how much it's supported or in terms of sort of viewing potential careers with that lens? What What you're seeing, what you're seeing when you're applying, what you're hearing, just your sense of it, your... Just your gestalt, like this program would be a no fly for me because of, wow, I'm hearing strange things or this program seemed great. I'm interviewing. I'm I'm visibly pregnant and I feel like this is a really warm and inclusive environment. This program, they read my articles and they're asking me questions that make me uncomfortable. That sort of just or or not. Or is that is none of it germane or relevant when you're in that place of being an advanced fellow entering the job market? And I have a hard time believing oh, that that would be the case. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. I think it's part of just. Like, and I, I was worried when I, I actually sort of joked that these, this articles and this sort of branch of my work, cause I have a whole, you know, separate line of research that is much more sort of traditional. Um, and I, I was sort of joking that that sort of, that 
my articles in this and and other work that I've done in this are actually you know potentially detracting from the job market. You don't want people to think that you're going to come and be a troublemaker or that you know you know oh I'm going to interview this person and she's going to get offended at anything I say about you know I'm I'm very obviously pregnant and so if someone notices that I'm pregnant I'm not going to be offended by by that. I worry that it's um, just as a candidate that I will, that pe- some people will view me less favorably. But kind of what I thought of when I went into fellowship is that those places are probably not the right fit for me. Those are probably places where, um, you know, people, you know, the the group a little bit, you know, doesn't have each other's backs as much and isn't, isn't as close-knit of a group. You know, I, I, I hope to join a really collegial department where you can sort of talk about these issues or people are self-reflective. I think we've come a long way in medicine and we have a long way to go. And so hopefully having this as part of my portfolio <laughs> will sort of self-select almost on both ends of a, a group that's sort of more receptive to this kind of work. What is your comfort level on making your work in the gender equity space forward facing on your CV, on your cover letter, in your interviews, and do you adjust it based on I've heard X about that place. Let me just tinker with my CV a little bit. What what does that feel like? It's tough. It's it's a great question and it's tough. Um and I think even like beyond just the job application process, your day-to-day life, um, I consistently have received the advice from, you know, women mentors in medicine that if you have a conflict or an issue with work that's like child related, like if you have to leave, you know, a little bit early because you have a pediatrician appointment or like something like that, like don't don't say that you have a pediatrician appointment, say you have your own doctor's appointment. Because if you sort of look like you're, you know, prioritizing child, you know, it'll it'll look it'll look bad. And um and so I think I, I think that that is probably true for some people. And then certainly I'm, I'm sure that I've sort of like adjusted some of my day-to-day conversations um, in the workforce. It's tough because there's only so much adjusting of your CV that you can do. I list my publications in recent order and several of my recent ones have to do with gender equity. So they'll, they'll probably know <laughs> um, if, when I send them my CV. Um, I guess I could take things off of my CV. But as I mentioned, I think it's probably better to sort of represent myself honestly and then, and then find a better fit. But certainly it does, it does make me more nervous or wary going to certain, certain interviews or certain discussions um, with that sort of in the front. And, and I seem to have a habit of doing this. I don't, I, you know, it was not, it was not intentional. <laughs> I was pregnant when I applied for GI fellowships and I'm pregnant when I'm applying for, for attending jobs. It worked out well the first time. So I guess it's, it's reasonable to try it again, but yeah, it, it sort of felt like, you know, I, I might as well find a program that fits me well. As you've emerged as someone who has written about this and, and also done it, right? You were pregnant when you interviewed for your first fellowship and doing it again now to go into the market. How much are people reaching out to you? You're on social media. You, you're still, as you said, you have got a, a thread with all of your old co-residents. I would imagine that grows year by year. Are you starting to get pings of like, hey, Lauren, you know, what, what have you learned? What are the things that I can do that you've, that you've seen and felt? How much of the opportunity has arisen for you to start being that mentor? Absolutely. I, um, I, 
a large amount of women yeah. have reached out to me and talked about sort of when to time pregnancy. Um, I've had anything, medicine residents, medical students, um, other fellows. I've had applicants who said, you know, like we're applying to our program and said, I didn't want to say this on, you know, interview day, but I am curious to hear what the fellowship program's leave is because that's something I'm considering. Like it's this whole, it's this major topic that affects a huge proportion of, yeah, certainly not everyone wants to be a parent, but of those of us in medicine who do like it's it's a large percentage and so but it's sort of this like taboo topic and so i've had a lot of people reach out to me it's one of my favorite things to do i love to mentor i love to like you know pay it pay it back cuz i've had so many people support me but it does give me extra appreciation for the work that sort of like julie silver does you know when i have had one of the conversations that i had recently i was like driving my daughter, you know, back from childcare and, and like, you know, she's in the background and I've got this person in my headphones that I'm trying to, you know, pay attention to. And it's, I, you're sort of trying to fit, fit those mentoring sessions into an otherwise very busy life. And, and it's not something that's supported. It's not something you're getting academic credit for. It's just something that like a whole, a large proportion of people in medicine do because it's something they feel strongly about. So then flipping it the other direction, you you'll continue to push things forward. You're in an interview room with the with the honcho of an organization. Yeah. Gender indiscriminate. And they ask you, Lauren, we want you here. We're going to hire you. What's one thing? And I've got a good budget to execute on it. What's one thing? What's the first thing you would want us to do to make this our organization and hopefully our profession? better when we think about gender equity and parenthood? What's that one thing you want? Oh, wow. Um, that's a great question. There's so many things. That's sometimes how meetings work, right? They'll say, look, we yeah. have a budget for a project. We want to execute on one specific thing. What is it? And they'll want to know then. That's a good question. Um, I would say I if an sort of an unlimited budget I want sufficient like staffing such that people can take periods of leave for whatever reason without it being a huge burden on their colleagues cuz one of the huge issues I think for gender equity one of the reasons why this is so taboo one of the reasons why I think it's sort of like potentially a job killer that I'm out here talking about you know pregnancy and parental leave and you know gender equity in the workforce is that people hear that and especially people who've already had children or without children think you know like Oh my gosh, I remember all these times where I've already been busy at work and all of a sudden I'm picking up extra calls, you know, my schedule doesn't matter anymore, my time isn't valued and you know, I'm I'm so overwhelmed. And actually every every you know, month or so on medical Twitter, there's some viral tweet that goes out that someone says, you know, you know, just because you chose to have kids doesn't mean I have to see that last patient because you have to pick your kid up from school. You know, I like you know, I, my time matters too. And, and they're right that their time matters too. But I think the problem in medicine is we've all been so like, you know, un understaffed and, and overworked that it creates this sort of, it's this false tension where it's, you know, these people sort of like, you know, you're fighting against the wrong person. It's not the fact that, that, someone had to pick their kid up for school or someone else wants to take parental leave. It's that I think we all need a little bit more flexibility and coverage to, to support each other. And whether that's leave because you're 
parent is sick or you have other caregiving responsibilities or X, Y, Z thing that you want to do. Um, that That's my, my dream. <laughs> I'm delighted that that's what you went with. And let's first of all say there's plenty of other great answers. And it's unfortunate that it would have to be this idea of here's the one thing. That being said, what you just described for me is what we all struggle with. And that is the scarcity mindset in medicine. And, and as yeah. you said, it's it's a false challenge wherein the structure is such that we're all just, there's no meat left on the bone. And so if yeah. you say, hey, I need another bite, somebody else has to give up from, from theirs. And then you end up fighting. That's the definition of the scarcity mindset. And it sets us against one another instead of saying, why is this set up this way? Why is it set up the same way that it was 80 years ago, acknowledging that the profession is way more complicated way more difficult, way more draining. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I think it's it's fantastic that you already have that strategic vision and insight because lifting that rock and flipping it so people can at least understand, I'm not fighting with you. I'm not. I'm frustrated that you and I have to struggle. Of course, I want you to go and take care of your kid. And of course, you don't want me to have to work any harder. Yes, That's yeah. the very definition of the problem. And I think it's great that you can nail it. Well, thank you. I, I recently, um, you know, many months ago, I was um, covering uh, one of my co-fellows, you know, went on a parental leave. And so I was I had been switched to that weekend and an attending had said to me like, oh, I, I thought it was supposed to be X person on this weekend, not you. And I said, well, actually, you know, they had a baby, they're on parental leave. And they said to me, um, oh, you know, I... Um, I don't really understand why people feel like they can just go on parental leave and like, or like an inconvenience their colleagues or something like that. <laughs> Where I was, I don't think they meant it to come out like that, but I was just like, Oh, that's the, I'm the wrong person <laughs> to be saying this to. Um, and uh, I, I sort of like pulled up one of my recent articles and was like, I think you should, you should, you should get read, this. To read this. And it's, it's not that they're a bad person. It's not no. that they're, you know, it's, it's just that, like, I think exactly as you said, it's everyone is is working really hard and overstrapped. And it's an indictment of the way that we all came up because they heard that they didn't yeah. invent that in a vacuum. They saw that happen to Absolutely. their attendings or when they were in the job market or so, someone that there's a good friend that they've they've seen that. And then they've that person saw it before it. It's th that's years and years in the making. And like you said, that's not a bad person. That's a person saying, okay, this is how it's done in this profession. And that it's normal right. to say weird things like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's really common, unfortunately. Yeah. In other professions, yeah. it's insane. But for us, it's absolutely. And, and that's the work. Yeah, well, that's, and, you know, whenever the sort of one of the jokes is when you tell, I think, um, you know, this is experienced by many women in medicine, when you tell someone in medicine that you're taking 12 weeks of sleep, they're like, wow, you get 12 weeks off. That's incredible. And when you tell someone outside of medicine, they're like, really, they would only give you 12 weeks off. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's very different. Somewhere in there, the, the, the truth lies, you know, it's, that's, yes. a, that's a tension, but, it, but it takes commitment to, to reconcile it. And the fact that it's starting with, you know, you submitting articles to journals and, and <laughs> that's the best. That's the dumbest rejection I've ever heard. But that that yeah. that lack of 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 situational awareness about all of it is that's that's the starting point that we work on. The other place that I think you have a, a, a really unique insight on that I am curious to hear about is in the midst of a pandemic, being a busy physician doing procedures that are aerosolizing that are in the airway while pregnant. 
what has that felt like? Because it's that's a very rare thing. You're in a very uncommon space. And as we move through the pandemic, there aren't going to be that many people who will say in 2020 and 2021 and wherever time I was pregnant and and still practicing. (laughs) What has that felt like? Uh, Incredibly challenging, to be very honest. Um, It's um, it's scary. uh, And um, everyone's right. You know, you worry about your own self getting sick. But um, the level I think any any parent who's been working in this pandemic and knowingly been increasing the risk for their for their child, especially, you know, vaccines are still not approved for under 12. And so um, knowing that I'm potentially going to bring something home, um, especially before I got vaccinated. And now it's much less likely that I'm vaccinated. Um, But before I got vaccinated, knowing that I was, you know, putting my kid at risk um, and that it was something that I felt strongly about. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of parents have this story not to get too into into the sob story, because I'm sure this is very common. But yeah, I, I like wrote out a letter for my kid, you know, because she's she's still really young. She's only three, you know, she's almost three before, um, you know, when when the pandemic hit of sort of explaining why I was doing what I was doing and why it was important to me and like how much, you know, I I valued her and and um, sort of my hopes and dreams for her. And, and I'm I'm young, I'm younger than I think most parents are when they have to sort of write out those things for their kiddos. But it was it was certainly a really a really tough time um, worrying about you know what what would her life be like if she didn't have a mom and and you know my worst case scenario, which is what if I brought something home to her. Um, so it's been a challenge, and then aerosol generating procedures and the back and forth on like the limited N95 supply. I mean, it was, it's really tough to go, you know, to do things that are, um, you know, potentially putting you at risk and that there's equipment that could decrease your risk, but we didn't have enough of them. Um, and like really reusing these N95s. And now, now that we have more, I'm sure I'll be like, you know, I'm sure our whole generation will always keep a supply of you know, a few N95s in our, in our desks just in case for, for when the next pandemic comes. Um, because yeah, they, they were like, so such a valued resource. And I still, you know, the, the guidelines are changing, especially as someone whose immune system is not fully functioning. And we, there's bad data, you know, on pregnancy and COVID. Um, so I, I still try to try to do all upper endoscopies wearing an N95, um, which is sort of not the, not the standard recommendation right now, but um, it's, it, that also increases the difficulty when you're pregnant, um, during my first trimester when I was incredibly nauseated and you got this like sealed N95 on your face. It's, it was, it's a challenge. As someone who has demonstrated an aptitude for writing about difficult things, have you had the opportunity to consider whether these are things you would write about? Um, I have not yet, probably just out of more out of being busy. Um, um, uh, I have not yet thought about writing about it, but I I would love to. um, And I'd love to to share my experience someday. So it's a great idea, hopefully forthcoming when life settles down a little. You'll, you'll drop the teaser trailer on us when you, uh, when you come back, but you know, the stories that come out of this are so important. And I think it's easy for us to lose track of that. Cause when we look around, we see people who are doing the same thing, but we lose track of this is really rare. 
this is really uncommon yeah. work to be working in a hospital. Um, I mean, I work in a hospital, but I don't do an aerosolizing procedures. Like you're in a very, very rare space, rarer still, young child at home and pregnant. These are the these are the stories of that reflect the American experience around this. And I would would really encourage you acknowledging the the barriers, specifically time to to find ways to reflect on it. So at least for right now, you don't forget it so that when there maybe is time and space to write or narrate or whatever the case, the memories are reflected because we all know, right, the the penguins jump off the iceberg and new penguins come on all the time. Keeping that stuff in a in a in a place where you can reference it in the future, that would be like you would be doing us all a, a, a service by doing that work contemporaneously. Absolutely, I, that's a great point. And it took me a few years to write about the interviewing while pregnant experience. So maybe I'll, <laughs> another year. Or so I'll, I'll do this one. And I agree that sort of keeping track. And I, that's actually good advice for everyone in medicine. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, there are, I'm sure, things about your experience that are making it unique. And sort of keeping being like a Google Doc or a notes page on your phone, where you're sort of writing down these little snippets or these little these, you know, the, the meaningful moments are, it's a good idea to sort of put these articles together later. I didn't when I was a resident and I wish that I had, uh, there's things yeah. that I remember. There's plenty that I remember, but some of the nuance, some of the detail, I, I wasn't journaling, writing, you know, dictating into a, you know, into a recording device of whatever. So yeah, I mean, I remember what I remember, but that's all I kind of have. And I think that what you just put out there to your friends and your colleagues who are in that same place as you that are really in the crucible of training still. Yeah, it's it's a great idea to to, to keep that collection if for no other reason than for your own, you know, family archives. Yeah, well, it, it's I started doing this actually in medical school. Um, I'd sort of forgotten about this Google Doc until you just mentioned it. But I, I had a Google, there's a Google Doc, Google Doc in medical somewhere. School. Fun. There's, there's a Google Doc somewhere that uh, it's. Uh, I was trying to keep it under the radar, so I called it Daily Dose, and it it was um, for my daily dose of sexism. Um, and I, I should say, I loved my medical school. I had very good experiences there, wonderful mentors, but there were little things that uh, that could be improved upon. Um, and um, like when we first came for our white coats and they asked for your size, they only had the white coats in men's sizes. And so even for like, you know, an average sized woman, um, the sleeves were sort of hanging off. You had to like roll up your sleeves a ton and, and it just looked sort of silly. You looked a little bit more like you were like playing dress up as a doctor. And that was just the first of met now as I'm, I'm in a male dominated procedural field. I'm very, very used to using equipment that is not designed for me. But I, 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 you know, I, I wrote that down and and a few other little anecdotes of like things people mention in lectures or other things. Um, And so started keeping that document and maybe that sort of helped support the, some of the, some of the work I've done so far. So then as we move through the women in medicine month and hopefully expand the awareness of what it is like for women in medicine acknowledging that it's a this is our profession and we all have ownership in it i have ownership in it you have ownership in it the ownership is all there it's different but the responsibility is not diminished for anybody do you feel like having been a part of the work now for some time what does that sort of gathering of momentum look like is it still are we in that moment of inertia or do you from your perspective, maybe see a little bit of traction. 
I see, I see traction. I think people are much more willing to talk about it, much more interested in this and much more generally aware of it. I mean, you, you have a um, successful podcast and you're reaching out to me to talk about the, these things that are sort of undercovered. And so I, I think that it's one of many examples of, of people starting to pay attention. Um, I think that we have work to go. Uh, certainly um, there's increased levels of bias and worse, um, you know, worse issues experienced by, you know, any physicians who are underrepresented in medicine. And so um, making sure that sort of, um, you know, we're sort of having an inclusive movement and and those stories are highlighted. And with like Women in Medicine Month, we want to make sure that we understand that there's for like gender nonconforming, um, both physicians and patients, there's a, there are a lot of barriers sort of in the current healthcare field. So making sure that we're sort of that we're keeping the momentum going and moving it forward would be, would be great. As people hear this and they want to find you, read you and continue to track your journey. How do people find you and how do they find the women in medicine movement? So I, I am on Twitter. My handle is Lauren Feld MD. Um, and the women in medicine movement, I would just say, start following a lot of women who are sort of out there and pushing boundaries. Um, we talked about Julie Silver earlier. She's a great place to start. Um, she has a give her a reason to stay campaign. So if you search for the hashtag, give her a reason to stay, you can sort of keep on top of that. And um, there are so many just really incredible women who are, who are coming to mind. I, I'm a little nervous to list people because I don't want to be um, forgetting them uh, or f- like leaving out people, but um, a few off the top of my ha- head. And, and again, apologies for all those that I'm not including. Uh, Vinny Aurora from UChicago. She was one of my mentors during residency. And Amy Oxentanko, if you're in the GI field and or just in general, because yeah, she's uh, very incredible. Um, Rachel Osaka is one of my mentors at the University of Washington. Um, they have really great and inspiring Twitter Twitter presences. That's awesome. That's that that's great to hear. And, and we'll have links to your articles in the show notes as well, so people can read them as as they go forward and hear this. This was awesome. Thank you for doing this. It's not easy stuff to talk about. Uh, it's one thing for me as the, you know, the host uh, who's a male physician, middle of my career to do this, but for you to kind of step into this tension and share with us so transparently, it's really admirable and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you for having me. I appreciate, I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak and, um, and reflect the experiences that I'm sure, I'm sure many people are having. So um, I'm, I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. My thanks once again to Lauren for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. There are links in the show notes to the articles that she referenced. Please do check those out. Please do check out the Women in Medicine Month content on Twitter and the wonderful leaders and mentors that she referenced as well. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides enterprise-wide healthcare coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams to improve patient connection, team collaboration, and leadership effectiveness. Organizations see significant results when participants spend a mere five minutes per week building skills through app-delivered programs. To learn more, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. And my thanks to you most of all for listening. Wonderful to have you here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will be back soon with more great content. There's more hashtag MedLasso episodes coming as well. 
If you have a chance to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your shows, please do so. And please do share the show with your friends and colleagues. Hit me on Twitter at ETS show. Email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. We will be back soon. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.